Just a content warning that on this episode from about 50 minutes, Carly talks about her infertility journey and also a period in her life where she was having suicidal thoughts. Welcome to the Resilience Rising podcast with me, your host, Jen Scottney. With the help of my guests, we will be getting curious about what resilience is, how we develop it, and the times we've used it. This podcast is here to explore all things resilience. Today, my guest is Carly Tate. After being a spectator at London 2012 Paralympics, she was inspired to take up wheelchair racing, having previously had no sporting background or inclination to partake in anything remotely active. After four years of hard work, determination and a lot of sacrifice, she made it onto the start line at the 2016 Rio Paralympics, competing alongside many of those whom she had watched in London. In 2020, at the age of 34, Carly was diagnosed with premature ovarian insufficiency, often referred to as a premature menopause, and she is now speaking out about the challenges she faced in trying to get a diagnosis and support. Oh, welcome to the podcast, Carly. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to have you. No, I'd seen some snippets of this and I was like, oh, this sounds like a podcast I can definitely get behind. Fantastic. Yes, I hope. I I really feel like everybody has got a story or something to say or an experience of resilience. And I mean, I know you have (laughs) just from reading out those little snippets. Oh, thank you. I just, I mean, to be honest, it's quite, I mean, the Paralympics is in the grand scheme of my life really quite a short period because I only got into sport at 27 so I hadn't obviously had any background prior to that or um or to be honest um after because I kind of treated it like a job like I've got a goal so I'm going to go and do what I want to go and do then I'm going to stop and do something else so um I always talk about sporting my sporting background um in a in a very different way than people expect me to talk about it and then when I divulge well actually the whole thing was never about um sport I had no burning ambition to be an elite um athlete even though I became one, it, it that wasn't that just happened to be the vehicle. So I saw London 2012 and thought, oh, that's my next step. That's how I get success. I'm going to be an athlete so that I could feel that I'd achieved something. And oh. and it just wasn't about sport. It was about me being um, the best I could be in a sort of inclusive world if that makes sense um, and it throws people off all the time they're like huh yeah but I mean I love that I love the fact I, I mean I find that more exp- inspiring than somebody who was kind of performing from the age of four and handed whatever you know in sporting racket or ball or whatever it was yeah. and and to me I can't really relate to that because I kind of put them to one side and think well they've got the talent they've done it from a child being a child and I'm nothing like that so it but with your story I mean I'm not going to 
be an Olympian. But it's that kind of taking up something new and your life suddenly going mm. off in a completely different direction that I really find inspiring. Thank you. It, it, I wasn't expecting it at all. So um, <laughs> it, it's a bit of a lie. So I have a, um, a high perform. I had a high performance coach and he often refers to it as my light bulb moment. So, you know, I didn't go to be a spectator to, th- to think, okay, I'm just going to take notes because I'm going to be an athlete. So I'm going to mentally go to London with that in mind. I just went to London because, you know what, I just thought, wow, I didn't realise disabled people did sport. And actually, this seemed like a complete celebration of disability. And prior to 2012, we did not celebrate disability. And even that, even now, if you look at the legacy it's dwindling. Oh, really? And disabled people are are taking steps back because society is taking steps back. So we benefited from the movement of 2012 and, and all of a sudden disability was on our screens and it was almost perceived as, as, as um, acceptable. That, for me, had a big impact on me because I, I grew up in the 90s when you know it took until I was 10 for it to be illegal to discriminate against me so you know I had to fight to get into school I didn't my parents did um you know I got to go to a mainstream school but whilst I was there I was segregated and I was kept at arm's length and I was you know um restricted from opportunities and I just couldn't do things. I couldn't be in the school play. I couldn't write with a pen and just like loads of silly things that I just wasn't allowed to do because I was the disabled one. Um, So fast forward to being 27 and seeing 2012 on the screen. I was like, I definitely need to just go and watch this because this feels like a moment. It feels like a movement. So that's why I did it. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I just wanted to be somewhere positive, you know, somewhere that I would feel safe and accepted. And I thought, well, if I can't be accepted at a Paralympic Games when every single seat has been sold out for every single session, for every single event, then I don't know where I'm going to feel accepted, you know, accepted and safe. So, but it was when I was there that I sort of said, I feel like this might be something for me to pursue. And what were those around you? Like, what well, was their reaction? A, I mean, I went, I went with a friend, um, just like my best friend at the time. And um, all my friends, even the ones I didn't go with, so all my friends knew me as Carly, the sort of party girl, Carly, the girl that is allergic to exercise. Um, I was quite overweight. I was quite big and um, I was very sedentary. So, you know, if you go for a night out, my friend knew the they knew how it was going to go they knew right okay so we'll get a taxi from here to here we'll get a taxi from here to here we'll not go too far because one Carly doesn't like walking but two she's not very good at walking and also add drinking to the mix and she's not going to make it so it was like you know everyone knew that I just didn't do anything physical fitness wellness related um I was also a smoker 
I smoked about 10 a day. You know, I went to uni in the heyday when you could smoke in the club. Oh, yeah. Um, and you could and afford to as well. I'm not you sure. Could you could. To. I recently <laughs> saw the cost of a packet of cigarettes and I was like, I think it's like 15 quid. I, was I like, know, I know. I used to smoke like a pack of 10 little May- Mayfair, which were like the cheapest. I don't think you can even get them in yeah. small packets now, can you? £2.67. <laughs> anyway, and, we, uh, we've gone off topic. I know, I know. But like, so like, I, used to, I used to just, I used to just... I did things to fit in, admittedly. Even though none of my friends would smoke, I decided to smoke. It was quite a conscious decision, actually, to start smoking. And I just thought, well, I I want to feel like I can be accepted, so I'm going to start smoking. I mean, even I can't compute it now. Anyway, so I was I smoked a lot. I drank a lot. I would be on the couch on a Sunday, hungover, head in bucket, that thing, you know. I'd go to work on a Monday. People would be like, oh, what did you get up to? Be like, oh, I went to this club, that club. So everyone knew what I was like. So when I went to London with this band, we actually only managed to get tickets to the closing ceremony, which is the bit at the end, the party. I mean, if you're going to get tickets for anything, I mean, that's... That sounds oh, like <laughs> exactly what you needed. <laughs> exactly. So, but I had actually um, got myself an injury when I was in London. So at this point, I'm 27 and I just renounced all association with disability. I absolutely ha- hated any type of mobility aid, would not use a crutch. And if I had an injury, say, I would rather be off work than not go into work injured. Um, I didn't use wheelchairs. I didn't know how to prepare myself at all in a wheelchair. But when I was in London, I was a bit of an overzealous tourist and I ended up spraining my ankle, my tendon. And I had to go to A&E and they were like, because I couldn't walk, but I had nothing with me to help me to walk. So I was stranded in this hostel and um, managed to get the biggest, like strongest painkillers I could. And then I said, I don't think I'm going to be able to go to the closing ceremony. What am I going to do? Like I've spent all this money to get there. I can't go. So my friend managed to get me in a taxi and the taxi dropped us off at a residential area as close as it could get to the stadium, which was probably about a quarter of a mile, half a mile. Um, I just got dropped off outside somebody's gate. <laughs> My friend walked into the stadium, came out of the stadium, came out of the stadium with a wheelchair, wheeled me into the stadium, got to the stadium. All of the game makers got me a golf buggy. <laughs> <laughs> they got me in this golf buggy, and then obviously I did not book Jan the accessible seats because why would I? Um, and the game makers, I had one either side of me, like carrying me up this massive flight of steps because I'm right at the very top in like heaven. Yeah. And um, they were like, they were so lovely. They were like, if you need anything, if you need the toilet, just just wave. We'll come and get you, blah, blah, blah. And I, do you know that experience, that experience of actually not being a burden? Yeah. And and that experience of nothing's too much trouble. When actually when you're younger, you're taught that you are trouble. You're taught to just, you know, don't ask for too much because you're already a pain. You're already a pain in the arse. So, um 
that just wasn't my experience at all. And London's notoriously inaccessible. And they even had um, what they called the javelin, which is um, a specific tube. Um, like, was it a tube line or a specific? Yeah, like it was a specific um, underground service. And it was called the javelin. And basically what it was for was just for spectators to get to and from places quickly. And they had a priority line. I just, I felt like royalty. I was like, <laughs> I'm just going to the front. Got, and they let me take this chair. They got me on the tube. And then I got off the tube. They put me in a taxi and they took the chair back. What type of service is that? <laughs> oh, that's so nice. A nice positive um, it was amazing. So, but then and I, I guess like, that's kind of what we would want to just expect day to day. So the fact that wow. this was such a monumental experience for you is a, is a little bit depressing. But. Yeah, I think it just highlighted to me mm. that, wow, I mean, this, this is really how it should be. But also, I kind of felt for me to prolong this feeling of of being accepted not too much trouble um that's when I had the brainwave when I was in the stadium and I sort of turned around to my friends and I said I'm gonna go to Rio and my friend was like all right yeah so watch it (laughs) (laughs) and I went no silly no I'm going to be an athlete um I'm gonna be a racer um, because the poster girl at the time of the London of London 2012 was a wheelchair racer, and having done a bit of research on her, I knew that she was in a category for people with cerebral palsy, and that's what I have. So I, at that top point, didn't even know that people with CP did sport. I didn't even know that wheelchair racers had legs because you can't see them but the touch underneath. Um, so I just immediately just sort of, I was like, right, well, that that's something I can do. Like, I, I mean, this isn't rounders in year 10 anymore, is it? This this is something that built for me, for me to do. Like, oh, right, I'm, I can do it. That's amazing. And so I just, so kind of potent what an image can do, like in mm. terms of that inspiration for mm. you. And, Definitely, that positive representation because it didn't. I didn't just have the idea of suddenly going to the Paralympics because in the history of the Paralympics, it had never been sold out before, and it never really been televised to the extent. Mm-hmm. Definitely in the UK, it had never been televised like it was. Yeah. So I didn't really know much about how it existed, and um, yeah, for me, the whole beginning of the journey the beginning of me getting to the idea of oh I'm going to be a Paralympian was the media it was oh that, that's a disabled person on a billboard what like and that's somebody in a magazine being interviewed it just I wasn't used to this type mm-hmm. of um representation at all so that's what sort of triggered my idea to that oh maybe I should go to the Paralympian <laughs> But then what do you do with that idea? I mean, I wouldn't know where to start. What did you do? Google. Yeah, yes, Google was around that. Google, how to be. <laughs> how, how to ask. Yeah, exactly. It was that. 
<laughs> I mean, Channel 4, I'll give them some credit here because as much as I know that the Paralympics for everybody at that time in 2012 was first and foremost, a commercial opportunity. Channel 4 actually did a pretty good job, really, of sort of closing the loop. So, yes, they had a TV campaign. Yes, they had the broadcasting rights. But they created a portal um, where basically anyone could go onto their website and navigate to find sports in their area, um, adaptive sports. Oh, really? Oh, that's yeah. great. I know. Let's have a shout out to Channel 4 for that. I know. And that hadn't been done before. Mm. So, you know, and even now, it's not very well done. So uh, this is me coming back to the legacy of if I want to find out how to do a sport that's adaptive, even at a community grassroots level, because not everyone wants to be a Paralympian. Well, I guess that's where you were starting as well. But yeah. I can't actually go and find information. Mm. Um, I don't compete competitively I don't compete at all now so if I just wanted to go to a class and feel that I was with people that were similar to me I can't find information anywhere and it's exhausting whereas Channel 4 just had details of a local club and it was Stockport which is down the road from me um, and that was mind-blowing because the nearest club outside of Stockport with Leeds and Glasgow. <laughs> okay. So Oh that's it, great there was one so close. Just worked. I mean I was working full time mm. and I worked full time all the way up to um almost getting selected. So I had a I there was no way that would have worked. No commuting up to Glasgow. So <laughs> do you think non disabled people do tend to take that for granted Mm. oh I can just turn up to a gym class I mean I might not be very good but you can turn up to a gym class and you you can be assured that you could at least do some of it Mm. because most classes say things like oh for all abilities what they mean is all non-disabled capabilities they don't Mm. mean disabled people so it's a bit like it's yeah so they they enabled it really so yes I had the idea and channel four just had the information so I got in contact with this coach and then so what yeah what how did it go from there (laughs) you put the fag down (laughs) do you know what I was smoking still I didn't stop smoking until I was probably about four months into training I mean well, I'm, I'm a bit older than you, and in the nineties, I remember like some of the footballers smoking when they were like off the pitch. But oh, no. <laughs> so, um, my yeah, no, uh, I just said to this coach, um, I'm really interested in doing motor racing. I'd like to be a Paralympian, uh, preferably 2016. Can I come and try it, please? And he said, Yeah, come on down. Um, didn't really tell me anything about it. It was it was a windy, cold, wet November, dark, dark because it was night after work, and um, I, I I think I was wearing jeans, <laughs> and I was wearing Converse, and I had my hair down. I was like a fashion show, and then he was like, "Get in this chair," and I couldn't fit in it. 
and it was the biggest chair that he had. It was built for a man. It was as old as me because it was built in the 80s um, and I couldn't fit in it. So he said, right, go and get in one of the lads' wheelchairs because I didn't even have my own day chair or anything. So I got in one of the lads' wheelchairs, which a day chair, if you know the difference, a day chair is just like your everyday wheelchair that you can self-propel yourself um a sports chair is typically really narrow so you can use your body to navigate while you're Mm -hmm. doing it and um so get in that chair do 100 meters do 400 meters which is a lap I didn't even know that and um it took me like 10 minutes and I was exhausted I was like oh my god this is so hard um because I just were really naive and I just thought well I know my arms are not the problem so I reckon this is going to be a doddle um and I did the the, the lap and he was oh about 10 minutes oh, yeah and then I was like well is that good and he was like well he told me I think the T34 current times I was like what and then by the time I actually retired from sport I could do a 400 meters in 66 seconds so I'd literally shaved off like (laughs) 10 minutes (laughs) minutes. fantastic but like at that point like we just I mean it just feels like even on that first night you could have just thought actually this is beyond me or this is going to be a lot of hard work like were you still Mm. determined what was driving you to kind of keep at it when it was getting well when you were realizing how hard it was going to be well it was a build honestly because I didn't just go into um training every day overnight it was you know come one day and then come two days then come three days so we did build up to that sort of tolerance level because I think he did understand obviously by the look of me that I was completely out of shape and just not at all conditioned for high performance so I think he sort of took his time with me initially um I did find it really hard but um when I it's really hard to explain as well because I'm not in that space anymore. But at the time, I felt so unfulfilled by life because I was just, as a disabled person, you're not disabled by your condition. Your, your condition is not what disables you. It's actually irrelevant. And when I talk about disability all the time, people hear that I talk about my experience of it they're not hearing because I'm not telling them I'm not telling them anything about my condition I'm not describing that what I'm describing is actually the social construct of disability and how as a society you're making my life harder so that's what I was fighting against that daily battle of trying to find a parking space trying to access the building safely trying to go to work and get promoted which was never happening and I wasn't getting paid fairly and I knew people who were doing the same job as me that were getting paid a lot more and I was just constantly at the bottom here but I was very ambitious as a young person I think disability can teach you that 
because what you're trying to do is you're trying to prove to people that you are like them and that you're just as good. So I was very ambitious from a young age and, and I knew when I started work because I, I w- used to work in marketing that I wanted to be the best marketing person. I wanted to lead a team and um, I just wanted to be the best I could be, but I was just systemically always staying at this level. And I was just so depressed by it all that actually this one nugget of, oh, that was a really good weekend. And oh, la, la, oh my God, like somebody's on the telly. I, I wanted that, if I'm honest. I wanted to feel mm, accomplished. So it was it was so strong in that moment and in that space of time that it, it just it sustained that journey. Because I just never, I never lost that vision of I'm going to be on the start line. And I never actually used to say to myself, you're not going. I always used to say, well, I'm, I'm getting there one way or the other. So, Because the alternative was going back to that going. kind of unfulfilling yeah. life. So, Yeah, uh, exactly that. It must have been so hard, though, to kind of go from that kind of first experience that you described to getting to the point where you were going to be selected for GB like what sort of difficulties were along the way then well working full-time was probably the biggest difficulty Mm. um time so that's where a lot of the sacrifice came from because you had two hours in your day and you couldn't spend it sat in front of the telly. You had to spend it on the track. Um, so, yeah, my job was um, a big challenge. And I, to be honest, I did mentally check out of my job very soon after I started training mm. because I knew that this is where I was going to be successful and I thought well, what's the point of trying to keep being successful over here if the world and society doesn't want me there and isn't willing to be inclusive but in the sport world my coach hadn't even asked me anything about cerebral palsy because he doesn't care because it's nothing to do with that it's to do with your strengths and it's to do with right well we just need to keep practicing keep practicing those pushes you know it was never about what I couldn't do whereas over here it was and um yeah work massively but then also things like um maintaining a a weight so I had to get my weight down um which was really hard because I really I've sort of distorted eating from the 90s and and I was that young girl that would do Weight Watchers um I think we're all looking back and seeing how completely like (laughs) ridiculous the time was then. Very distorted eating. Mm. I would often not eat in order to get my weight down and that wasn't helping me to fuel myself. If you're trying to build muscle and be an athlete, it's the opposite of what you want to do. Were you getting support with that kind of nutrition and Uh, other aspects of the coaching? Mm. Not really because, I mean, my coach was a massive help. He knew... The physical side of it um but you know he actually was a paramedic in his day job so he knew about the body he knew how to get people to a level but he didn't know everything so you know he had knowledge but he wasn't an expert nutritionist he wasn't an expert snc coach so a lot of that i had to fund myself or find myself um 
Yeah, and that's no like a, and how about as a female as well? Because like I'm a running coach, and it seems like it's fairly recent. The kind of oh, maybe we should actually do some studies on females. They're not just oh. men. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That I didn't have, um, I didn't have any money. So as a, I mean, obviously I have my full time job, but um, sport is expensive especially mm. adaptive sport and definitely the investment needed to maintain a level is expensive and as a para athlete I was not considered sponsor worthy right. so I didn't have sponsorship for a long long time is there access had... to any other funding or we like um from so I think central bodies or are we talking sponsorship from kind of brands or so corporate yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you do have central funding. Um, so if you're on the programme at British Athletics, you do get access to central funding if they think you're at a good enough level. But I guess you so have that kind that. of catch-22 of getting up to that level, don't you? Yeah. So in 2017, I got put on... Oh, sorry, 20, at the end of Rio, I got put on the world-class programme. So prior to Rio, didn't get it was put on all the self-funded. Yeah, self-funded, but then I was very lucky in that I decided to change my job halfway sort of through my journey. And I worked for a brand that I knew were inclusive and ethically minded in their sort of representation, their output. You kind of sometimes think, well, if a brand looks like this on the outside, they might be like this on the inside. So I took a very considered step for my next job and luckily luckily it you couldn't even write this luckily there was a new marketing director that had started at co-op at a similar time that I did and um she worked on the brand for London 2012 she worked on not the actual creative, but the, you know, the creative strategy and the brand strategy behind the whole 2012 campaign. So I approached with a proposal and said, because of the, the strength of that campaign, I am now on the road to Rio. <laughs> so please, can I leave work? You continue to fund me and I'll come back to work afterwards. And is that what happened? Yeah. So in Great. my last year, in 2015, just so the December, so literally seven months before Rio, or seven months before selection, um, I was able to leave work. And, and that must have made a massive difference. I mean, one of the things, like my husband's an elite athlete, and one of the things that we kind of discuss about athletes that are able to reduce hours or work uh, or re- kind of finish their work is it's not get necessarily giving you more time to train it's giving you more time to recover and just kind yes. of fuel yeah. yourself as well mm. and do different training mm. so like my training after work just consisted of track um it didn't consist of road because at night it's not very safe um people can't see you either in the dark low down so I didn't do a lot of road which is had a lot of benefits and uh, I, I wasn't training enough to be honest with you I was not at the level of selection I was nowhere near the criteria so when I left work 
and all of a sudden didn't have to worry about my bills or my mortgage or anything um I could just train my training went from six sessions a week on the track two hours a day to 12 sessions a week but more of a continued sort of sustained approach with a burst Mm -hmm. at the end of it so you know it would be like maybe get up in the morning do some sort of yoga pilates type um work and then do um like a a slow kind of recovery push and then maybe go to the gym do your snc and then possibly you know end with some sort of more explosive type of exercise towards the end so i would basically train in all day because you are right the recovery is part of that so I used to be so exhausted and I didn't realize how exhausted I was I mean that just kind of to me screams discipline like did that discipline is that something that you've had in the past and always been a disciplined person or is that something that just came from that drive of I know where I'm going and this is what I need to do to get there Mm, I am quite disciplined I'm quite disciplined I grew up um with um a lot of rigidity um my um I have six other siblings and um I I feel like I did grow up in a bit of a military kind of regimental way because that's kind of how you at that time would control however many kids but I think specifically for me and also my sister who also has GP we're not twins um we we were just, I, I think we were just sort of, um, we had a lot more boundaries. We had a lot more kind of like, oh, you can't do this. There was not really that exploration or that opportunity to flourish as, as, as a kid. So I think my, my personal nature was one of discipline because I, I, w- I just wasn't treated with a lot of flexibility. Yeah. Um, and it was, you know, quite a strict household as well um but then I do think it is coupled with that innate sense of drive that I have because I still have that to this day I just I'm utilizing it in a different way at the moment because I don't want to be um a pro athlete anymore but I have other ambitions so and just We've talked about the kind of physical training, but I think you mentioned that you work with a performance coach. And I wondered if that was at this period leading up to um, Rio. And you'd kind of talked about a childhood that was kind of characterised by what you couldn't do. And like, did that all just switch when you saw those Paralympians or was that something that you had to work at as well? I did have to work at it. Um, I did mention before that I was quite naive. So I was expecting that I would, you know, it was mostly the physical side that I needed to work on. Didn't really even consider the mental side um, because why would you? You've never really had experience of sport before. Um, And elite sport as well. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I noticed, I knew very soon um, into my first competitive season that I was in trouble um, because... I just couldn't function. I could. I couldn't. I couldn't. Um, I couldn't perform. I was sick. I. 
I just I just lost all sense of what I was meant to be doing. So is this like at the races, like when you were there on the start line? Yeah. That kind of... yeah. Um it wasn't so much the mentality during the process because I think I was quite good at bolstering myself and kind of keeping myself on the journey and being like not too deep in into the uh, problems. I'm I'm a solutionizer. And that comes from childhood and that comes from the fact that I do have a health condition that needs managing. So I'm, I'm very solution based, although my partner would definitely not say that because he always said to me, your problem, I'm solutioned. And I'm like, <laughs> OK. So anyway, so um, but it was that my hurdle was based on. Yeah. And how yeah. did you overcome that? What sort of work were you doing? Um, so I I got to the end of season one, which is um, 2013, and I got to the end of it, and I was so glad to see the back of it in terms of the racing, not the training, just the racing, that when I started, uh, when the 2014 season started to approach, I'd get emails and copied into like, oh, please enter this race if you if you want to, it's in Sheffield or whatever. And the the feeling of dread was so intense. I was like, I've got to do something. So I I managed to um, find a coach who worked with a lot of corporate entities on things like behavioural sessions, leadership sessions and that type of thing. But he's also got two avenues you've got the sports avenue and I think that's where it all started initially but a lot of people don't realize that sport and leadership and sport and like the business world uh, go kind of go hand in hand so that he'd been able to like take some of the methodologies from this and the learning from this and bring it into the workspace but anyway I messaged him and I said haven't got a lot of money got zero if I'm honest with you but this is my story yeah and I needed to help. And I think based on the strength of the story, and he talks about it as well when he does some little talks uh, and sessions that he does, that I think I sort of drew him into that, into the whole idea of... So last year, you were smoking. <laughs> and now, okay. So and I think he wanted, I think he was invested in the story. And I think... We always talk about, you know, the light bulb or the passion that's ignited. And I think I was very much a physical representation of what he talked about. Um, and uh, as I said to him, I'm just too nervous. I can't, I don't know how to get my brain to work when the gun goes off. And so he did a lot of visualisation techniques um, and he did a lot of... Um, neurological pathway work so I was so used to being told whether implicitly or explicitly you're not good enough as a child that they were so deep-rooted that mindset is so deep-rooted that that's your natural neurological response to things and so what he was saying was we need to build new pathways we just need to do that so he worked on things like strategies on race day to help me to to sort of basically not dwell too much inward and to and to almost distract me from things that were going on. 
um, but also strategies for how I could possibly maintain performance. So um, things like when I'd get on the start line, I'd immediately worry about who was in the lane next to me. And if I can control what they're going to do, like just worry about yourself. And, and I never did. So it was all made very much keep your head down, don't even look, don't even think, count count your numbers how many pushes do you have to do at the start and I'd be like well typically you do 10 fast pushes and and he'd be like right let's count them do that at the start line don't let the opportunity come in and it wasn't perfect it was actually a constant um it was constant progress I didn't ever perfect it I think that's fascinating and I think it's also that kind of idea that the elite athletes or just other sporting people um like don't feel the doubts or don't feel the nerves actually they do but they just accept it as normal or have strategies to deal with it it feels like doesn't it yeah and when you have to do it on a world stage (laughs) yeah so tell me about that so we're kind of having to fast forward a little bit because I also there's so much I want to talk to you about but you've kind of you've gone from this (laughs) unfair unsporty you're there you're racing like was selection guaranteed how did that go had you got got where you needed to so before selection there are actually other events that you can do that British athletics might select you for so yep. although you're not on the program they they know who's they look at the list and they can see the rankings and they know who so you're on the radar mm-hmm. yeah you're on the radar so I got selected to wear a vest um oh that must have felt so so exciting yeah, yeah and my first one was in Glasgow it was a Grand Prix and a British Athletic well it was a Grand Prix um that televised and I'm lucky that I had the world record holder in the team 34 category so anything typically with her in it is televised oh right I wondered where the luck came because I'm like surely that's just going to make it really hard to no, <laughs> get anywhere near so, them <laughs> okay not I see have a, yeah, not every power category <laughs> is invited to the Grand Prix. Oh, really? Not yeah, not all, they're not all integrated. Oh, I didn't realise um, that. Some categories don't hardly get any TV. It's that field particularly don't have a lot of televised um, opportunities. But I had the poster girl of London 2012 in my category who was ranked number one. I was at the time ranked number seven, eight. So they were filling a lane essentially with me but do you know what I, was like, I don't care Phil Phil take it with me I don't care but um you know that was televised and that would be massive stadiums so I did have um opportunities just before Rio to do things on a on a national scale um, and what scale. were you like with that world record holder were you oh, like fan fangirling oh, it <laughs> getting the selfies yeah, a um, yeah no it was a little bit um <laughs> but I I was um quite intimidated by her I had an illusion that disability sport would be really well athletics I, I had an illusion that I thought um everyone would kind of get on because I'd never really experienced um, the dynamics of competition before. Um, so why, why did I think that everyone was like best pals? And do you know what? She was she was lovely. And it wasn't that we weren't 
friends. It's just that I had this idea in my head that everyone just walked around as friends. But actually, what you are are colleagues and acquaintances. Um, but I thought potentially, oh, you know, this is going to be like, I didn't know any disabled people bar my sister. So I thought it was going to be um, a sort of a family. Mm. And it and it and it was in some ways, but not in others. And and I and and um, yeah, that was a learning curve, you know. That like like you have at work, it's the same thing. You're not friends with everybody at work, are you? No. And and it's exactly the same. So I actually ended up becoming a training partner with her anyway in 2016. Because I had the same, I switched coach, so I had her coach. So we ended up in Australia together training. Um, I mean, I would not contend for her because she'd had the benefit of 10, 15 plus years in sport, whereas I was compounding everything into a four-year period. So she was mad ahead uh, of me, but also I had the extra complexity of having a condition that I knew nothing about as well, uh, which impacted my... Yeah, uh, which we'll get on to talk about yeah. after, yeah. Um, but yes, yeah, so I had lots of opportunities to don the vest. And, and be on the telly it sounds like you're traveling around the world and this just seems like so exciting a bit of a dream really um I did have one occasion in um I, I did get invited to the Europeans which was before Rio because they're on rotation so you'll have like the world the you'll have the world the Paralympics the Europeans you know it yeah. kind of they rotate and so had you been selected for Rio at this point or was this part no, of the journey just got selected for the Europeans mm-hmm. I think they wanted to give me some international major competition experience yeah prior to Rio so I went um failed horribly on my 100 meters I feel like I hadn't disgraced myself because I was meant to be gold because of the timings of the people that were there I should have been gold I I got silver and I was so upset like I got off the start line I so when you you know when you go through the finish line as a wheelchair racer you have to like naturally let just take your hands off the wheel and eventually you'll stop Uh, anyway and I remembered failing and then immediately, you and Thomas from Channel 4 Name put dropping. a microphone <laughs> in my face and goes, how was that? And I was like, it was live. <laughs> and, I, and I went, in fact, I don't know if it was live, actually. I think it was live. But I just said, you're going to have to give me a minute. <laughs> so you frame that silver medal in the European Championships as a failure? Yeah, it was for me because it was a bad time as well. And it's not necessarily always about placement. Mm. It's about your time. Um, And also some of the other contenders were not there. So it wasn't like I was racing number one and number two because number two was US and number one wasn't there. She didn't want to go. So it was almost like... Oh, but that but that 2012 Carly would have just been so excited to see you get silver. I know. I mean, (laughs) this is where you get into that elite mindset. Where I mean, my husband. But then I picked myself up in the 400. The 400 was a photo finish. 
and I and I start and I looked up and you and Thomas was there <laughs> and I, I just went I looked at him and went I didn't did I get it and he went I don't know <laughs> and then so I was happy about that silver because that was actually like a proper silver whereas the first one I was mad right. about because it wasn't I could do better and so fast forwarding to Rio um how did that go was that experience exactly what you hoped it was it wasn't another failure I'm hoping no I I mean in your eyes I'm clearly not saying it's a failure (laughs) no it wasn't I was uh, I was extremely beyond nervous um in fact uh, I think I'd done a good job up to that point of keeping all of that sort of nerves and adrenaline at bay but I sort of catastrophized I, mm. I have a tendency to do this, but I catastrophized in my head and I was like, oh my God, well, 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 what if I get on the start line and um, I do a false start? Because it's not like it used to be where you could be, you could go again. It's mm. an immediate disqualification. And then in my head, I was like, well, my, my dad is here and my sister's here and, and, Basically, I've come all the way to Rio and I've worked four years to be disqualified. Honestly, this is what my head was Yeah, doing. but I mean, it's, it is four years' work coming down to 60 seconds. I mean, that it must be so yeah, hard well, to not put that pressure on and not get overwhelmed by that situation. Yeah. It's not like you can and go I and do it again the week I after. Coach, like ringing me, like trying to calm <laughs> it down. And, and there was lots of things happening that were, we had to pivot. So I was meant to have a heat and then someone dropped out of the heat. So it made it a final. And, and that kind of messed me up a little mm. bit. And um, I mean, uh, it was just because it was coming to the end of the goal and I just panicked however because of all the work that I've done to be able to mitigate nerves when you're there actually when it matters this is what you need to do I'd managed to sort of hold that down I finished sixth which I was happy about but I was like well I could have done better than that (laughs) Um, but you know, I'm I'm happy with it. You know, in my first Paralympic Games, I'd never done it before. Like I wasn't too. I was. It's uh, an yeah. amazing story. Well done, Carly. Thank you. And then I thought, well, I can do it better, so I'm going to do another year. So that was that to the world. Yeah. So what? How did that go? So that was a lot better. So in Rio, I was only selected for the hundred meters. Not. Not the 200 four. or the right. 400 oh, in okay. fact the 200 wasn't on so the 400 or the 800 and I was a bit annoyed that I wasn't selected for the 400 because I was like well I I um I'm good I'm good standard um but I wasn't selected for the 400 whereas in the world I was selected for them all and I finished fifth and fourth so I, I was I was a lot happier but I knew that London was going to be my last hurrah. And why was that? I mean, just the kind of training and the lifestyle, it seems like that was kind of unsustainable, dropping everything. Um, Was it to do with that or was there another reason why it was was always going to be this kind of one shot at it? 
There was something poetic, isn't there? Not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, about... if you'd have got the false start, then maybe you would have had to carry on for another four know, years. <laughs> there was something poetic about starting your journey in London 2012 in the stands as a spectator and finishing it. Oh, so that's where the exact stadium, that's where the worlds were. Oh, fantastic. It's the same stadium. So I just looked up to where I sat and I, and I just took a moment and I was like, you've done it. You've done it. Um, So there was that sense of, I don't, because it was never about being an athlete. (laughs) It was about. So if you'd have, yeah, been inspired by some other hobby or, is something else completely you would have done that I yeah I just I knew that I could succeed in something and I knew that I could be brilliant at something and it just so happened that it was sport that showed me that so I was like well I'm gonna go and do that um, so I didn't I didn't have I hadn't thought beyond 2017 but it was sort of compact I was 31 so there were younger girls you know I was competing with 16 year olds you know that that does impact as well and um, I was 31 it was really hard to have a boyfriend as well like I had a boyfriend but we'd split up twice so every time someone said like how long have you been together I go well 10 years growth <laughs> eight years net <laughs> because we did have a couple of breaks and and I also wanted a baby so um and also my last season to be honest although I performed better race wise I didn't feel that my times were better did you enjoy it as well oh okay and does this lead on to kind of you had this underlying condition that you didn't know at the time. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that because yeah. I realise that I'm kind of keeping you for a long time. So sorry about oh, that. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Got my jacket potato in the oven. So <laughs> um, I mean, I had not, um, I had not really heard about menopause or I mean, you know, bits, don't you? You don't really know the ins and outs. I didn't know about perimenopause. Um, or post or whatever any of it means um, it was in hindsight quite clear that I was perimenopausal in Rio so even that in itself I'm like well well done girl because it's tough when you're not medicated and you're not getting the right hormones and there is a tendency in sport not to monitor women's hormones and not to really delve into the menstruation and 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 we don't look at that we definitely i mean i hope that that is changing and i think there have been but they're very recent inroads i think like from the athletes that i coach we do kind of a lot of them have their training cycles based around their menstruation and it's something that we do monitor but so many women like female athletes have been like told by medical professions that it's oh it's fine you don't have periods that's normal (laughs) when you're training and I mean like I'm hoping that 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 is not normal now but I don't know to be honest like with some of the medical professionals I had really bad periods as a young person, really, really bad, really awful, a lot of pain, heavy, heavy bleeding, 
um, but immensely heavy. So I would be on transdexamic acid. I would be on iron tablets. So as a youngster, I'd be on like 10 tablets a day trying to manage flow. I would also be on constantly. So, uh, you know, my cycles were really, really short. So when I got to about 18, they said, you can go on the pill. So I did. I went on the pill for a good 10 plus years. And then obviously as an athlete, you have to be really careful with what you put in your body. And I knew contraception was fine, but I thought, well, let's just not be on it because you're really healthy now, Carly. Like, just get rid of it. So I did. And my, my periods seemed to stabilize in the sense that they weren't heavy but I never knew when they were going to come so my cycles would probably be between 30 and 40 days and that was fine I mean I was competing and training it was an inconvenience to be honest Uh, but then 2016 was was a shift so before Rio they definitely shifted and I was starting to see more patterns of 60 maybe edging towards 70 and I remember being sort of like competing in Switzerland got really they've got a great track in Switzerland um and I was competing there and I just sort of said to one of the mums because you get quite a varied age range in wheelchair racing um you do have children competing with the adults um and vice uh, and and it's mainly because it gives them a great opportunity but also it gives that's where the volume is so you know you can't race nobody so you you have a mix anyway so I used to talk to the mums a lot because of my age and I said to one of the mums when I was there um I'm a bit worried, you know, I haven't had a period in about 60 days, but this isn't, this has happened before. Do you think it could be something like menopause? And they, and, and they were like, no, because you're like 30. Mm. So I said, oh, okay, I'm just going to go and ask the doctor. So actually, while I was there, I went to ask the doctor. Is this like a GP type doctor or a sports doctor? Did you get like offered? Doctor, right, okay. A sports doctor. And um, because I knew people, in the teams and you know they were friendly I, I knew them you know so I thought well even though I'm not on the program I'm going to go ask and I was told it's common for cycles to disappear is this as an hard. athlete yeah yeah so I didn't think about it carried on then in 2017 it was just more of the same don't know when I'm having a cycle when I retired from sport, my cycles came back weirdly for four months and I was hitting 28 days and I even got an ovulation up and everything. I was like, oh, they have come back. It was sport. But then in December 2017, they disappeared. In fact, my last period ever was November 2017. So how, what age were you then? Like really young? 31. Yeah, that was my last ever period. Um, but I didn't raise the alarm until December. And I got pregnant in the February 2018. But because I wasn't having cycles, which I was investigating, because I went back to my GP, I was like, oh, you know, they thought I had PCOS. They then thought I had an ovarian cyst. Um, all of these problems that I was being tested for just we're not there um 
and I went to see a gynecologist privately on a healthcare plan and um, he said oh definitely some of these hormone readings show that your body still thinks it's on the pill and a sign of that can be an ovarian cyst so I'm going to do an internal examination with the wand my partner was with me but I said you don't need to come in for this love I mean you just sit there so I went in got examined Anyway, right, well, um, I definitely can see the problem. And, um, yeah, 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 definitely found it. And it was like, you turn the screen around and he was like, you're pregnant. And then he started going on about how well established this baby was. And this was a complete shock to you. (laughs) Can you just, can you just shut up? And you get Matthew in <laughs> So I got Matthew in and he did the same to Matthew and he turned the screen round and there's a 13-week-old baby in there. And um, very, very lucky, very, very fortunate. Didn't realise at the time. But as a gynaecologist, I would have expected with the history of the no periods, my last period being November 2017, that that might have triggered someone to say, great that you're pregnant I think that's luck I think that is not I think that's something that you need to look at once you have the baby no one did so when I talk about my menopause journey I talk about the catastrophic neglect of of um all all of the professionals around me because you know I would access the NHS I had my own access to in the in sort of the sporting world I had my own access to professionals and then I went to the private sector and none of them said menopause so I then after the birth went down a very very dark awful hole didn't know that it was menopause related I actually knew it wasn't um postnatal very certain it wasn't postnatal. Uh, I had a massive anxiety. Tried to climb out of a bedroom window thinking that the house was on fire. I was like quite psychotic in a lot of ways. Um, started to really sort of, my mental health massively declined. I was quite, um, had a lot of suicidal thoughts and got there was an intervention and I ended up getting support from um the health professionals and the health visitors with um antidepressants and that just gave me a breather and actually the antidepressants really helped to just kind of make me feel a bit more human um and, and I was on them for quite a while. And as part of being on them, you have to go every month for a checkup. And I would say every month, is it okay that my periods haven't returned after the birth? Are they not meant to come back? And, and they'd say, oh, um, yeah, but you're breastfeeding, aren't you? And I'd say, yeah, but I mean, they've not, I've not had them for eight months. So surely there'd be something by now. And um, they'll be like, no, don't worry about it. This is your kind of new, this is your new normal. And they then said, 
yeah don't worry about it I felt better so I decided to um have another baby um and in that process I said right I'm not even going to start trying I'm just going to go to another doctor and find out but obviously by this time I hadn't had a period for three years so you've got to take notice of that and then they did a blood test and six weeks later they said that you are post-menopause you've got no eggs left and that was hard like it didn't other than that one time that I'd mentioned it years ago it just didn't even I just was like no way it just there's going to be something underlying nothing to worry about and it, it just completely altered again my life with that diagnosis oh what a story like I'm so sorry that you've had to go through that and it just sounds hard as well as you've had to deal with that while looking after your it's, baby. Well, I, I got the diagnosis when my son was two. Mm. And I think he was still a baby. So the way I dealt with it was to find a solution. Like I deal with anything. And I decided, right, okay. Um, I, well, I feel like Donovan IVF might be a solution it took me a long time to get to that point of like okay let's do that um because it's a big deal it's a big mm. deal to go and find a donor egg and what that means for you what it means for your family um and we started our donor egg journey as soon as well I say we started the journey as soon as I was diagnosed we started the journey in terms of research then last summer we were able to find a donor and start the process and we got 14 embryos and not one of them worked. So that failed, um, which is unheard of really in terms of that type of number, but also because you're using a donor egg, the quality of the eggs are better. So they give you quite a high percentage chance of success. And they were quite struck at the fact that I had 14 embryos and not one worked, not one made it to a sister blast, they call it. So I didn't have anything to transfer. That was awful. The worst news um but we plow on and we are just waiting for our second um cycle our second donor good luck with that Carly and like what strikes me when you talk about that is when we were talking about that kind of sporting journey it's very much have this mindset put in the work put in the hours and this will be the outcome and it that just seems completely hopeless really for something like this like it's just a lot of it seems out of your hands now yeah totally out of my control I learned a lot, though, from the first cycle because everything was good news. Good news, good news, good news. All until it wasn't. Mm. I was not expecting, and because no one else was, but I was not expecting to be told, I'm sorry, you haven't got anything. Go back on your HRT. Like, I literally went back on my HRT the next day. 
I went back on my HR, like I went back on my HR team the day after. And I was like, how am I back at square one? After, what was it, 2020? And so two and a half years, all of that work and all of that emotional investment and I've got nothing to show for it. Like I've not got anything, not even got a transfer. Um, And that took a long time to get over. But then for me and the way I am, I was like, well, I'll go again. That won't always be the case. If it doesn't work, I can't keep going. I haven't got an endless supply of money. We haven't got an endless supply of tolerance and, you know, emotional capacity to deal with to, to deal with it. It puts a massive strain on our relationship and our family. So there had to be an end point. But I do think that once I reach that end point, I won't ever look back and think, oh, what if? And what sort of things have been kind of helping you to go along this journey and kind of keep at it? Mm, It's a bit like the sport vision of, oh, I can just see myself on the start line. Never had any experience of a start line, but I can see myself doing it. I, for a long time, didn't think that I would be a great mum because I never saw disabled people being parents, never saw that being represented in any of the baby shops, in any catalogue or, you know, anything that you would see. So it took me a long time to be convinced to have a child. Um, And Matthew was a great sort of advocate of me. And he was like, no, you absolutely can't be a mum. So because I know how great it is, and actually the first time round, even though I was going through menopause and it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through mentally, much more than sport, I was still a bloody great mum. Because you might have all seen smiles and cuddles and love, but inside and behind closed doors, I was an absolute mess, but I was still a really great mum because I never... I tried not to fall apart after he'd gone, you know, until he'd gone to bed. So I just, uh, I just had that vision, you know, of having another bundle. Like I, I just see my family being bigger than than currently what it is, and I, not to say that what I have now isn't enough. But I don't think it should ever be a question of, you know, should you be grateful for what you've got or just stop? Because we don't ever ask people that go on to have more than one child, well, why are you having another? Like, because you want to. It's my, it's my right. Why do I need to justify yeah yeah and it's something that's come up on when I've been interviewing people on the podcast as well that kind of idea that well other people have it worse so you shouldn't be feeling a certain way and I think it's kind of universally agreed that that can be really unhelpful and I can see in this case you know it doesn't it, it would just not give you the space to kind of grieve and accept or even fight for kind of what you want in the future if you just be like well you should be happy because you've got one healthy baby and <laughs> it's not yeah. it's really not helpful is it I, I am happy but I'm also mm. like want 
I know that. Like, I just, um, a lot of people say to me when they hear, and I know it comes from a good place, but I just, I, I've started saying stuff now. So when people say things like, um, oh, well, at least you've got one. I go, yeah, thanks. That's not really helpful. That's not really helpful, mm. to be honest. Um, I know I have one. I'm, I'm absolutely so grateful to have one. But I think, you know, we deserve another go. I 100% deserve to have another go of being a mother without a mother going through menopause at the same time as having a newborn and breastfeeding. And as you've spoken out about that, Jenny, like it strikes, well, you've said, like there were so many opportunities missed to kind of see what was going on, whether that was for various reasons um, and the training as well. But I just kind of, I suppose, two questions. First was, did you feel that that was a kind of because you were female or was it the cerebral palsy on top of that that things maybe weren't looked for and also I was thinking like as you've spoken out about it have other women come to you and had very similar experiences so for the first part of the question I definitely think there is an intersectional lens to it I think having cerebral palsy being a woman um people might assume that CP is the driver of of anything that might be impacting me. Yeah, so not look at it as an independent issue. Yeah. Um, so that that does that does bug me. So I do have to advocate for myself, and I do have to push, and I do have to almost look at things before I go somewhere and almost have it in my head like what do I want out of this appointment or what is it that I'm looking for and I I will now feel more empowered to be like no I feel like this needs more investigation or something you know there was an element of just in my head thinking oh well you know I've got CP I just don't think I Surely I won't get anything else. Like, you've already had a bit of a crap deal. Um, but no, I mean, lo and behold, I then get osteopenia the next year because I've had so long without the right level of oestrogen that I've now got that. So, fantastic. But um, But women haven't necessarily come to me and said, oh, I'm experiencing the same as in, can you help me? But I definitely, having shared my story, get women saying, that happened to me, and this is where I am now, or, oh, everything that you say is so relatable because actually I've been in that situation, and um, this is, you know, how I've had to deal with it. And so I'm, I'm noticing a lot of commonalities around when women's health particularly particularly the younger end of menopause and I think that's because the statistics are quite unhelpful they say it's one in 100 women and they say that the average age to go through menopause is is 51 and actually people end up fixating on these statistics like like they're not changeable like it doesn't actually mean anything. It's you as an individual. 
So, you know, I just happen to be that one in 100. But I bet you if you talk to more women, you actually could think, mm, actually, is it one in 100 women? Mm. Is it actually a lot more women than we anticipated? And also if um, we're like dismissing the symptoms or they're being attributed to other things, like it can be happening and we're not really aware of it, I'm guessing. Yeah. Until like in your case, it's too late. To, or Hopefully not. Yeah. So I could have like had it been tested or just delved into a little bit more. I could have had the opportunity to freeze my eggs. Um, but that mm. obviously not. So I, I get I get frustrated and I, I do look back at it and sort of kick myself a little bit. But it, it's not my fault. So mm. I accept it now I try not to think about the what ifs because you know what yes I might have been able to take all my eggs out but that's no guarantee that it works and I've actually managed to naturally conceive yeah so so if I'd have taken all those eggs out would I have got Lucas probably not but Uh, I wouldn't have yeah ah And I kind of haven't directly, normally I'm quizzing people about resilience, <laughs> like what their meaning is. I mean, I feel like that's that's what we've been talking about. Um, mm. Do you see this, the journey that we've been talking about, both journeys, kind of as resilience? Like, what does it mean to you? Yeah, I think, um, I think, I think everyone's resilient. Yeah. I always talk about resilience being a coping strategy mm. because everybody has all experienced bad times and difficult times I think um I have had to learn resilience from a very young age and um I am just that type of person who's had quite a few difficult times and I've had to keep going and I've had to keep you know keep myself moving forward so I think when I sort of define resilience I do think it's that ability to move forward what I am very careful about explaining is that for me moving forward doesn't mean that you're constantly moving forward it doesn't mean that you're never stationary it doesn't mean that you don't ever go back it just means that being able to move forward is your ability to to navigate those difficult times I think when you look at the definition of resilience it's actually I think it I think it minimizes people's um experience um because it's it says something like um to withstand difficult times and it's like well nobody really when they're in difficult times withstands it do you think I withstood having a call from the clinic at half eight in the morning saying don't turn up because none of the MBOs have made it overnight. Like, no, I did not withstand that. I sobbed my heart out and went to bed for a couple of days. So that's not me withstanding it. So I think we're not saying resilience is about never being impacted or never, um, never crumbling. I think you do have to do some of that. Um, And also sometimes resilience doesn't really talk about the fact that you have no choice with some of these things. Like, you know, people often hear stories like 
disabled stories and things and they'll go oh I could never do I could never do that I could never be disabled I don't know what I would do if I ended up in a wheelchair but I'll tell you what you would do you would just end up in a wheelchair and you would just deal with it because what's the choice yeah and and I think that in itself is is testament to to resilience as well but there's no time frame on it you know you might really struggle with being in a wheelchair for years and then one day you might actually come to accept it and I think that whole journey is is a demonstration um of resilience yeah I totally agree I was kind of nodding through all of that I'd I'd really agree with everything you say. And I suppose like when we were talking about those kind of mindset, those race nerves and things when you were in the wheelchair racing, like ever you chosen to be there. <laughs> but like I do think those practices can influence how we deal with the the things that we haven't chosen. I mean, like after you'd had such a experience and shown so much determination to get to the Olympics did you feel like you kind of that had an impact for everything that you've done since or some things that you've done since did it in what way did it have an impact I think I've demonstrated to myself that I have the ability to overcome more than I think Mm. you know and I I don't necessarily recognize it in the moment but I sometimes when I'm faced with something, I, I do sometimes look back and go, well, you you made it through that. This is, a, is another curveball. Sometimes I might take learning from things like um, in racing, for example, I would always say I would always lose. <laughs> always. I'd always lose and then come off absolutely like really pissed off like really in a bad mood and just be like oh for god's sake I've driven three hours down south to have a crap race and and one day this um racer said to me Carly you need to shut up (laughs) because you don't lose you learn and I was like I know it sounds cliche but I was like He's like, you're moaning now that you've lost, but you're not you're not digesting the race. You're not remembering anything about that race as to why you lost it. And I was like, oh yeah, fair point. <laughs> so then I started to sort of think about a little bit more like, okay, right, so get rid of that narrative because that is that's impacting me, that's hindering my performance and my ability to keep moving forward. What did I learn? And sometimes, yeah, so I do take, I do definitely take some of the mantras mm. away from sport. And what are you up to now? Like what's coming up in the future? Well, obviously IVF. <laughs> yeah, so good luck with that. It crossed. sounds like that's going to be all time consuming. And I just. Yeah. Uh, that, that is a big one. I have come out of marketing um, as my sort of core job now. I just, I I recognised after sport that I just wasn't happy in it. And I, I did it for a while after I came back to civilian life, but I wanted to get involved in diversity and inclusion. So I now do that as a full-time role, but I'm also a consultant. So I'm really loving that because I feel like I'm in an environment that is helping me to thrive. And often it is not about kind of, sometimes it is about proactively changing your environment you know so I feel like that I felt really empowered after sport to kind of do that 
Um, what else? And then finally, I'm setting up um, a local sports team in Manchester for wheelchair rugby. Um, one thing that I've missed is even though I don't want to play competitively, I'm not making any promises because I find it really hard to do things socially. So, you know, you never know. I might end up being competitive wheelchair racer, um, <laughs> wheelchair rugby. But <laughs> one area that disabled people don't have is recreational leisure spaces and there's not really many adaptive programs out there for people that just want to be fit and just want to have fun with mates or a team so I'm working with a club in Manchester to set that up oh fantastic so, yeah, a few things Ah, oh, it sounds great. Thank you so much. You're such a fantastic advocate for inclusivity. And also thank you for sharing your journey and what you're going through. I know it'll help people just by talking about it and sharing. So thank you so much for that. It's been yeah, fascinating to talk it. to you about resilience. It's, it's, I never come with a simple answer. <laughs> I know we've overrun quite a bit. Sorry about that. <laughs> that was my fault. Matthew always goes... Is this um, a long story short or a short story long? <laughs> like, well, obviously the second one, babe. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. No, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Resilience Rising podcast. If you have enjoyed this episode, please do help people find us by hitting subscribe leaving a review or sharing us with others thank you so much and see you next time on the resilience rising podcast <laughs>